Welcome back to another episode of the Converge Podcast. My name is Steve. My name is Nate. And we are here to help you have a Christian worldview in a post-Christian culture. Once again, welcome to the Converge podcast. Uh, today is going to be a part two of what we're doing as kind of a loosely uh, fit uh, three-part series on uh, what we began talking about in the last episode, which is an article by Aaron Wren in The Masculinist about uh, po- uh, positive world, neutral world, negative world, and what that means. Uh, so for more information on that, please see our previous podcast. But today, uh, what we want to do to continue that conversation is talk about negative world in light of the missional movement uh, that really took place uh, 10, 15 years ago, maybe even uh, began really 20 years ago with the emerging and the emergent movement of the church uh, with a few uh, missional thinkers. And what really came out of that is a new field uh, in especially Christian academia of, you know, quote unquote, missiology, uh, people who specifically study the mission of God. And so now there are academic degrees to this. But really what we want to talk about today is understanding what happened to the missional movement. Yeah, I think in talking about that, so what we really kind of narrow in on is how is it that neutral world ministry is no longer effective in the negative world? Because I would think the the hallmark of neutral world ministry is probably the missional movement, what that was, how that sought to interact with a, a culture that had changed dramatically in the early 90s, late 80s, and now is more of a neutral culture. And so they developed kind of a, a missiology for that culture. Um, but then what we have noticed, especially the last five years, is if you don't change that as we move into negative world, there's a lot of problems. So I think there's a lot of help in dissecting the missional movement and where it's gone wrong. Yeah. And so... Kind of one of the prime examples of the missional movement uh, would be missional thinkers like Alan Hirsch, Michael Foster. Um, in what used to be a tribe that we were in, Acts 29, uh, there was a thinker, Jeff Vanderstelt, who's a pastor out in the Washington and Oregon area. Uh, and really, the missional movement was rooted in understanding what it means for God's people to live out the identity as people sent by God to live in the culture as not just missionaries, but people with an identity of seeking to infiltrate the world around them with the gospel, but in a different sense of not seeing yourself as just someone who's outside of culture seeking to engage them by proclaiming the gospel, but really someone who can exist within a culture, even if it is a pagan culture, kind of being faithfully present, building relationships, being seen by everyone as an asset to the culture around you and really putting roots down even in pagan culture to just be a representative of the kingdom of God in that culture. And I do want to caution us, though, because one thing that I've, I've noted over the years, especially as I've studied this movement, is much of the kind of seeking to have an identity as sent especially in the thought of those guys, is rooted really in postmodern ideology. And what I mean by that is not so much, and I don't so much mean it as super negative. I do in one sense, 
But so even if you were to say what I said about the missional movement, so many of the missional thinkers would say, no, 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 that's not what the missional mm-hmm, movement is. Right. And then you'll get five different definitions from five different missional thinkers as to what they think the missional movement is. So just like postmodern philosophers, every time you seek to define postmodernism, will tell you that's not right. Here's a different definition. There's another different definition. Missional strategists, missional thinkers tend to do the same thing. It's a goalpost that is always moving, very hard to pin down, and I think that is a purposeful attempt to evade critique uh, from the the missional strategists. Yeah. I think a good thing to note, too, at the outset is we get mixed up in the language because clearly mission is a theme of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Like, no one's going to object to the mission of God is all throughout Scripture. Um, That was a good thing to recover an understanding of, oh, yeah, the church is not just about itself. Mm -hmm. It, It needs to be concerned with God's mission in the world. So we're not in any way rejecting that, but we are saying that um, what was the missional movement took that good thought that we need to recapture mission um, and took it in a lot of ways that weren't helpful. Yeah. And I know for us, one of our core values uh, as a church yeah, is the absolutely. idea of mission. And we will talk about missional living, missional thinking. And so missional was a buzzword about 15 years ago. And just like every other buzzword, uh, people have become critics of it. People have lampooned it. Uh, people have caricatured it. And a lot of people, if especially where church ministry and church planning is concerned, if you use the term missional, uh, you know, they, they will, oh, that's, that's an old phrase. We don't use that <laughs> phrase anymore. Uh, but the reality is, is if you seek to divorce the church from the mission of God, you are going to get a stagnant ministry that is not fulfilling the Great Commission in the sense that God wants us to. And I think for our purposes, it's important to understand um, really two contexts of what being missional or living the mission of Jesus as someone who is necessarily sent by God. The Great Commission is God's sending us Mm -hmm. into a life of mission. Um, in Matthew 28, really in just verse 19, there's a lot of discipleship implications. And so a great thing of the missional movement was it recovered the idea that Christians are to live as disciple makers, that mm-hmm. we make disciples in order for them to be able to make disciples. And it recovered a, an idea of multiplication, not just of organization, but of people living in the church, being in relationship, being in communion with one another for the purpose of making disciples. And then, of course, uh, you know, we live out our faith in an unbelieving world. And I think Acts 2 as an important thing that was recovered. In Acts 2, starting in verse 42, it gives us this idea um, of getting together, living in fellowship with other people, studying the scriptures together, praying together, having the gospel being the root of what mm-hmm. we are as a people that not just pulls us into the life of the church. And this is something that that every missional thinker kind of has this view of. So I don't even know who to attribute this to because it's been in so many different sure. books. But the church is centripetal and centrifugal in the way that it works. It both pulls you in and pushes you out into the culture to live out that identity as being sent. And it also gives us this idea of living as beneficial to the culture around us. And I think that is a key point that is up for debate where the negative world is concerned because a lot of missional thinkers, they 
want to define being beneficial to the culture around us as them seeing you as being beneficial. Uh, We know that being beneficial to the culture around us isn't always going to be seen by the culture around us. And many times it's necessarily going to be rejected around us. But we do have to infiltrate the culture, engage the culture for what Scripture defines as beneficial. And it also helps us to understand that we need to live in relationships, engaging unbelievers with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that is what mission should be, but in a lot of missional thinkers, they kind of stop at the idea of living in relationships with unbelievers. And that's kind of yeah. the totality of it that there, you know, you have to not have an agenda for your relationships is what I often heard. And I rejected that aspect of it because mm-hmm. there's no one in a relationship in the world who has an agendaless relationship. Yeah. And if you are a Christian and the gospel is not your agenda, then I don't know that you actually love the person whom you're in a relationship with because they need the gospel. They need the love of Christ in their lives. Yeah. I mean, at that point, you're really not on mission. Yeah. So one thing I would go so far as to say, I like the term missional. Mm-hmm. I still like it. I still think it is helpful. So in in no way what we're doing here is a critique of uh, the idea of mission or even the term missional. I think everything that you just said that the church needs to be about that. But um, what is helpful, I think, is to understand now, okay, but if you don't have this kind of core in, in, in your understanding of this is our ground in scripture and what we are seeking to do to advance the mission of Jesus. And if you, as we'll get to truncate the mission to mm-hmm. just merely evangelism and even then truncate evangelism to merely seeking to get the culture to like you quickly, that goes off the rails. So I think with that as an introduction, you know, we can start to talk about what went wrong. What yeah. went wrong with the missional movement? Well, one one thing that went wrong is <laughs> this idea. And one of the the big ideas that Alan Hirsch has, and I, I, I have to put all my cards on the tables. Alan Hirsch had a, has had a large impact on me, on my ministry, on the way that I see myself. But one thing that Alan Hirsch especially talks about uh, and that has kind of trickled down through many people over the years is this idea of living as Jesus. And it's not living so that people will see Jesus, but more so living as though you are Jesus. And it's this idea of living living incarnationally. And the thought there is that as Jesus became a human being, you know, as God become man, Christians need to kind of empathize with the culture in such a way as to incarnate our faith into any culture on earth by simply being faithfully present. And it's not an idea about simply engaging them with the good news. Rather, it's a long-term strategy of living among them as one of them. And that's one of the key sticking points where that's going to prevent you from really being rooted in biblical ideals because the more you live among them as one of them, you are necessarily going to synergize with the culture. You are necessarily going to take on the values, the ideals of that culture. And so that will at least water down the gospel if you ever get around to presenting the gospel to them. And that is just a bad idea. And so historically speaking, the reason that the missional movement kind of began to go off tracks is because it wasn't rooted so much in pointing people to Jesus. It was rooted in this idea that we can kind of become everyone's personal Jesus. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in part of that too is is I think rooted in this idea that if if we just do that, if we just become everyone's personal Jesus or Jesus to them, then somehow they're that's going to end up causing them to look to Jesus because yeah. th- these people are not. I say they're heretics. They don't. They don't actually think they are. You know, yeah. uh, some of them. Some of them dance with it a little bit, but they they don't actually think they are. So don't get that from us at all. They're they're trying to point people to Jesus, but what we're saying is their methodology is very flawed, and they're never going to get there, uh, especially in negative worlds. Right. Uh, in neutral world, they might have had more success because the culture was not actively warring against Christian morality. So. This idea of just kind of being there amongst the people incarnationally, eventually it's going to lead to this relationship where they can point people to Jesus. Some of that could happen in neutral world. I've yeah. been questioned how much did, but once the culture turns well, and negative. That's the key is, is you're trying to gain an appeal to the culture around you. Yeah. And so many people within the missional movement, their chief goal just stopped at gaining a hearing with the culture, gaining a relationship with the culture. And that type of idea is birthed in the concept of a neutral world where you can find kind of common ground with the people around you. And so there's a lot of ideas that you could converse with culture over neutral ground, and you, you wanted to do that while you win them over. And it just simply doesn't work in a culture that sees Christianity as being a negative force, that sees all of the ideals that make Christianity unique, that make Christianity what it is, it would have to kill those ideals in order to fit in with the culture around yeah. us. That's where it started going off the rails. Yeah. As the culture turned more and more negative, um, if your whole goal is just to gain an audience, you have to start compromising more and more to gain that audience. And that's what we'll see as we walk through these things. This ultimate issue was compromise. Yeah, I know for us, the the phrase, and this was a big uh, Acts yeah. 29 phrase, it was a big uh, Mark Driscoll phrase. He was the first person I ever heard say it. I don't know if anybody else said it. I know that he has walked this back uh, <laughs> as of late, but it was this idea of being theologically conservative, but culturally liberal. That sounds, especially if you were raised in Christianity, especially if you have uh, conservative ideals, conservative views of scripture, conservative view, views of the gospel, this idea of being culturally liberal is, is, is somewhat liberating, I guess is, yeah. is a good word to to use from kind of a rote, kind of a stuffy, traditional uh, religious practice that that took place in most traditional churches uh, from the 70s, you know, through, you know, our adolescent period in the 90s. You almost can't even understand how different that sounded in 2002. Right. It's just so much different because now culturally liberal means that you are progressive, you know, critical race theory, intersectionality, you know, you're, you're embracing transgender ideology and all that comes with it. But what was meant originally by being culturally liberal was just meant being relevant to the culture around you. It meant don't be a weird Christian. Don't, don't be that weirdo Christian that, that just kind of sticks out like a sore thumb 
in every room that you're in. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of had more of an idea of how we practiced our Sunday morning gatherings than it did everything else. Uh, you know, it was as simple for a lot of people as, man, you know, in some circles, if you took your tie off on Sunday morning, <laughs> people thought you were going liberal. Yeah. I remember the college that we went to when they took the tie rule away where we didn't have to wear ties to class anymore. People were like, oh, my goodness, this school is going <laughs> liberal. Yeah. And so it did not carry with it the the and I don't even want to say political connotations, because I think that that muddies the water. And that's what a lot of people are still doing because they're stuck in um, neutral world. But it more so it doesn't carry it did not used to carry with it progressive ideology. Right. And it's not politics. It is a philosophy. It is a faith in a sense that terms like being culturally liberal carry with it. And so we simply cannot do that. It's not being culturally liberal is no longer about a style of dress. It's no longer about having music on Sunday mornings that is culturally relevant in a sense. You know, it's not about entertainment. Uh, now it's it's sloppy language. Yeah. Uh, in negative world, you just can't say that. Yeah, no, you can't. And sloppy language leads to sloppy practice. And so what happened to folks who were committed to this idea of being theologically conservative and culturally liberal is as what culturally liberal meant changed as we progress in the negative world, some of them started changing right along with it and started taking that seriously. And, and unfortunately, the culture started changing them far more than they were changing the culture. Absolutely. You see what were, um, you know, even in the Presbyterian Church, the PCA was started as a conservative movement away from the liberal theology of the PCUSA. And so many of their planters adopted this mindset. We're going to be theologically conservative, but we're going to be culturally liberal in our practices. And that led to things like the Revoice Conference, which is a conference within the PCA dedicated to helping uh, people who embrace LGBTQ identity feel comfortable within the PCA church. That is that is an, a fruit of negative world and what the missional movement produces within it. As you see, they do begin to compromise on theologically conservative principles, even where sin and sinful identities are concerned. Yep. That's one example. Another example that I think really might be the the biggest one is the folly of faithful presence. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just a, a concept. You already brought it up, but it went really wrong in the missional movement. And it's an idea that is absolutely rooted in neutral world thinking. And it's the idea that you can go into culture and society and as long as you are just faithfully present, you're on mission. And what's meant by that is not what you say, not, not that you propose the truths of Christianity, mm -hmm. but that you just kind of live as a Christian wherever you are. Just And, and that, even that's muddied because how do you live as a Christian without speaking the truths of Christianity? Right. <clears throat> but if you, if you are just a faithful Christian and out there in the culture, eventually uh, the people around you are going to ask you, well, Steve, why do you have such hope right. <laughs> and that you're going right. to change the world? And it just it, it never ended up going anywhere. But when negative world hit, uh, 
it was a problem. Yeah, and, and I, I think a lot of faithful presence is based on a bad interpretation of First Corinthians, or excuse me, First Peter uh, three fifteen, right, right. where where you know it says you know give a reason for the hope that is within you and <laughs> and answer with gentleness and respect and all these things. When it starts yeah. with this idea of apologia, with this idea of always be ready to defend your faith, and so it doesn't mean that you wait around for someone to ask you about your faith. Because when it says to be able to give a a defense for the hope that is within you, what Faithful Presence says, and this is where really everyone blew it, especially, uh, you know, uh, uh, missional thinkers like Russell Moore, uh, they they blew it with Francis Collins because it's the idea that if you're faithfully present, you do a good job, you're a nice person, you've 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 just got everything going on right for you, someone's going to come around and they're going to be like, can you tell me of the hope that is within you? The thing you have to understand about what was going on in Peter's epistles is he's writing to a church that's being actively persecuted in modern-day Turkey. They've had to leave their homes in Jerusalem, number one. It's the diaspora. It's the dispersed church who's been dispersed all through uh, what is modern-day Turkey, and they're being literally persecuted day in and day out for their faith. And Peter's looking at them and saying, people are persecuting you for your faith, and in that, you're going to have a countercultural hope within you that enables you to defend your faith while also not being as hate-filled as those people because you know that regardless of what they do against you, your future is set where the where the glory of God in the gospel is concerned. And so Peter was actually writing in a very much a negative world context to people who were literally having to defend their faith against people who were physically, verbally, philosophically, everything that yeah. you can think of attacking their faith. And so it, It's not untrue that we should be ready to do this. It's literally biblical. Like, like you (laughs) must always be ready to defend your faith. And that's not about having a PhD. It's not about having gone to Bible college. You can be a disciple of Jesus Christ with great knowledge about scripture, great knowledge about theology, just simply engaging in regular um, environments of discipleship. But in a neutral world, you may have success with faithful presence because it's just a little bit of that old Judeo-Christian ethic is still, Mm -hmm. you know, over where people are really looking at it and they're saying, oh my goodness, my life is falling apart. And it's probably because I'm not as moral as you are. Tell me why your family's so good. Tell me why you have it all together. We don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world where people's lives are falling apart because of their immorality. And they're saying, no, 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 you don't understand. The answer is I've got to go deeper into immorality, and you're a hate-filled Christian who's trying to prevent me from living what my life really is all about. Do you have an answer for that type of attack? Yeah. That's what apologetics in the sense of that text is really all about. When things shifted to the negative world, the rug was pulled out from under the faithful presence debate, and this is how you get into situations like 
Francis Collins. Francis Collins was in the murkiest of swamps where government, uh, you know, the National Institute of Health was concerned, where abortion is running rampant, where all types of ideologies and testing biological weapons and everything that we found out in the fallout of COVID-19, we found out that actually Francis Collins had to compromise. And this is what I'm choosing to think. I'm not choosing to think that he, you know, started out on a a bad page. I think he probably had really good ideals going into it, hopefully a really good sense of this is the mission that I'm on. But as he went down the road, he had to compromise to maintain his faithful presence. And at what point do you understand that you're unable to defend your faith as Peter called you to through the Holy Spirit because now you're sanctioning child murder. Now you are, I mean, to the point where you're, you know, torturing (laughs) dogs, you're you're funding uh, um, diseases that are going to have mass implications all over the world, and you're lying to cover up what you actually did. We have to understand is when you seek to live a neutral world mindset in a negative world, there's only one of two possibilities. You are either going to compromise your faith in order to remain in that presence, or you're going to have to pay the penalty for your faith, which is typically you're going to be ostracized by the culture around you. Yeah. The the ultimate flaw in faithful present thinking is to be present in a negative world. You can't be faithful. No. And so, mm. so and, and we're, the reason we're concerned about this, I would say, is we see uh, a lot of persecution on the horizon in this regard. Um, you know, Francis Collins was big in the news, so it's a perfect example. Had he continued to be faithful, which he was not, and said, no, I'm not going to promote, you know, LGBT allyship to my department. He would have no longer been allowed to be present. And so, unfortunately, yeah. he compromised. Well, and one, of, one of the things I'd also like to point out is some Old Testament uh, theology here is a lot of the, the problems with things like faithful presence is, is you don't know how God would have acted yeah. if you had if actually you stood right. up for biblical ideals. You don't Very know what would have happened if you had told the truth yeah. about COVID, if you hadn't tried to cover up your sins, is that a lot of these guys, in seeking to be faithfully present, they compromise rather than trusting how will the hand of God move. You know, Daniel, and this these are examples of people um, the, that kind of take the philosophy faithful presence, they'll look at somebody like Daniel and say, hey, Daniel was faithfully present uh, in Babylon. And I'll say, well, no, Daniel stood up for his faith in Babylon and they tried to execute him. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood up faithfully. They were faithfully present, but vocally um, faithfully. And Daniel said, no, I'm not going to pray. You know, Daniel could have closed his window when he Mm -hmm. prayed. Daniel could have hidden in secret when he prayed. No, Daniel willfully chose, I'm going to open my window. And he prayed out loud so that people could hear him. And Daniel said, I'm willing to pay the penalty for my faith in God. And I think we need to see people with that kind of faith. That's not the kind of faith that uh, Francis Collins has. And I'll tell you, the big examples you're seeing now of people like Russell Moore, he compromises on his faith. He's already shifted to uh, egalitarian ideology. Um, You're seeing guys like him. You're seeing guys like Ray Ortland. You're seeing people like Beth Moore compromising on their faith because they think it's going to gain them the audience around them. And they're trying to be faithfully present. But what it always necessitates is compromise. Yep. So, you know, be faithfully present in your workplace, but make sure you emphasize the faithful 
part yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't compromise your, your you have presence. to have a strategy yeah. all things are about strategy where yeah. it's just like what is the line that you yeah. won't cross of yeah. compromise yeah that's it all right next topic is uh the error of third way thinking and so what happened here is is under this umbrella of trying to gain an audience with the culture uh, large sections of the missional movement got really involved in the idea of third way thinking. And what this is, is essentially to boil it down, if there are two polarized uh, extremes and even in the, the 90s and 2000s, our country was becoming more polarized. It has only accelerated in negative world. But this idea that if, you know, if one part of the country thinks this and another part of the country thinks that, and so it can be political divisions, it can also be religious divisions, whatever area it is, um, the, the way to, to have a faithful presence, <laughs> the way to gain a hearing is to find kind of a third way between those two things. So as to basically not offend anyone and to highlight the, the good and the bad of every position. And so, uh, you see this, especially in Tim Keller. I mean, just to be frank, he's the a most, little the most famous. With this <laughs> guy that, that that propagates a third way mentality. Yeah, he did it in his textbook. It's really a textbook. I've read it. Center Church. He got it from a guy named a theologian named Richard Lentz, who who wrote basically a treatise in the fabric of theology about admitting what your theological perspective comes out of. Uh, Richard Lentz, though, and this is where a lot of uh, people, even in modern day theologians. Where they don't, they want to you to they want to act like you can't understand because you're not an academic, <laughs> but it really is they're toying with standpoint epistemology and postmodernism by basically giving you the idea that you cannot do theology without your culture having a huge impact, and so they kind of push for you to have the philosophy. That I have to admit that the culture around me impacts my theology, and it almost promotes an uncertainty about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And so what Tim Keller does with that is he pushes you to admit that you can't be conservative or liberal completely because those are, that's just the cultural baggage that you're bringing into theology. Right. And that's dancing with standpoint epistemology. That's dancing with the ideals of postmodernism. Yeah. And so a lot of this, I would say, comes from a, a misinterpretation of First uh, Corinthians 9.22 when Paul <laughs> says, I become all things, all people, that by any means I might win some. Yeah, and, it, and <laughs> what people do is they pretend that there's no line of morality in right. that. You can't literally right. become all things to all people because you can't become a serial killer in order to reach yeah. serial killers. It, it's the old uh, adage where people used to come, and I mean, we, and I absurd. still to this day can't believe we got this question where someone wanted to talk to us about starting Bible studies inside of strip clubs. Yeah, And it's one of those things was the, the quickest no I think I've ever... <laughs> ever said in my life because that was just such a mischaracterization of what the Apostle Paul means in that. Yeah. There must be very clear morals that guide your, you principally on applying that passage. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, now that we have transitioned into negative world, um, the polarization of the country has just accelerated. And a lot of this polarization is around clear moral lines. I mean, we talked about this last episode. You you, you can't can't really have a third way between gross sexual immorality is sin and gross sexual immorality is to be praised and celebrated. Yeah. Well, where's the triangulated third way between that? Yeah. You, you can't. 
And so what happens now in a negative world where the cultures are so polarized, if you continue to try to to find third ways of thinking about things, what you're going to end up doing is compromising morality or making false moral equivalents. And what a false moral equivalent is, it would be to say something like in my example that I just gave. It's like, yes, we need to hold to um, Christian sexual ethics. That's really important. But what's also important is caring for the poor. As if those are two things yeah. that are diametrically opposed and exactly. and somehow that means both uh, left and right are, are equal in their morality. It's just, it's just absurd. Yeah, a clear example of how um, wrong wrong-headed this has become, the AND campaign, which is ungodly. They're not a Christian movement. Um, they will conflate abortion with the death penalty. Right. And they'll use phrases like, "I want if you're going to be pro-life, you got to be pro-life for a whole life. And guys, foolishly, guys that we would say they were influential on us, people like uh, Danny Aiken, J.D. Greer, they have foolishly adopted this view of saying we got to be pro-life for a whole, whole life, which means that abort the sin of abortion is the same thing. And so if you're against abortion, you have to put the exact same weight behind helping people out. Out, get out of poverty. Yeah. You have to do both of them or you're not really pro-life. The problem is, is that pro-life just as a statement is all about abortion. Yeah. Once it is, we don't need to change it. You can be pro-life, anti-abortion, and pro-helping people struggling in poverty at the same time yeah. without conflating the two issues. But the problem is is when you go so far as to say the death penalty is the exact same thing as abortion, and they're not the exact same things. God is for the death penalty. God is against abortion. Abortion is murder. The death penalty is just killing of someone who took another life. It is a disgusting conflation. And you cannot look at someone and say that you can't be anti-abortion if you're not actively involved in adopting or you're not actively involved in alleviating poverty in your city. They are not the same thing. Abortion is a heinous evil. Those babies deserve to live. And for you to throw adoption on that issue and say, well, you know, if you're not willing to adopt, you shouldn't tell someone not to murder. Do you know how stupid that sounds? It's illogical. Plus, all babies will get adopted. So if you ask me, if somebody came to me and she was pregnant and said, I'm going to kill my baby unless you will adopt this child. Yes, I'd adopt the child, mm-hmm. of course, in a second. But not only that, I have about two hundred people behind me that would do the exact same thing, and they're members of this church. Yep. They would all save a life in that sense. But to go to the moral insanity of saying that if you don't have someone lined up right now to adopt this child, you should murder that child—that's insane. And so we can't conflate these issues. Another one is that all sin is equal. No, it's not. Yeah. Not all sin is equal. The Bible doesn't treat all sin as equal. Does all sin offend God? Yes. So from the sin of that little white lie you told your parents about your report card to the sin of murder, they both offend God. God is opposed to both. But... God does not level the same punishment against every sin in his law. Therefore, we know that not all sin is equal. So, um, you know, if if someone 
stole some money, they, there had to be retribution. They had to pay that money back with interest or they had to work off the money from their crime. Yeah. If someone murdered, well, that's capital punishment. That's that that is, you know, the just execution from the law. And so not all sin is equal. I want you to take the next one. Sure, sure. The, you'll hear in third way thinking a lot. Uh, Jesus was neither liberal nor conservative. And it's an absurd statement because the, for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus uh, lived 2000 years ago. And and this is this is where you have to be careful because there is a kernel of truth. All right. To, to false ideologies. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to say uh, our culture is not that culture and we need to understand the differences in our cultures. Well, yes, that's absolutely true. The liberal conservative paradigm of 2022 America did not exist 2000 years ago. However, like we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Right. We know right. that like th- those big broad terms have moral implications and Jesus clearly defined his morality and his morality clearly lines up more with a conservative viewpoint yeah. in 2022 if America. You don't think Jesus is a social conservative. Right. You haven't understood the scriptures. Yeah. And that's that's the bottom line. So this idea of third way is purely a pragmatic attempt to appeal to leftists who hold immoral ideologies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's hugely problematic. Um, as soon as is your main focus in your whatever your, your missional strategy. But now we're talking about third way thinking. The, what it ends up being is how can I appeal to people on the cultural and political left who inherently reject Christian um, morality is what it is. It's not about, we're not even getting to faith yet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, yes, they reject Christian faith too, but they reject Christian morality. And so you're saying, how can I make Christian morality palatable to people who hold an opposite morality? You can't. Yeah, and it, it is always about making it more palatable to leftist ideologies. Yeah. There was almost a missional assumption within the missional movement that everyone on the right The conservatives, culturally and politically, were already Christians, and thus we didn't need to gain an audience with them, which is absurd. Being a conservative, you know, politically, socially, morally, that does not make you a Christian. There are a lot of conservatives who don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we do need to be missional where they are concerned as well. Yeah, that, that's an important point, too, is to understand that this, this whole idea of our our third way, our faithful presence, uh, it's all geared towards how can we get the cultural left to um, give us a hearing for the gospel? Well, what about the cultural right, yeah. which is half the country? And that, that was a huge flaw in the missional movement. And especially when entering into negative world, yeah. third wayism, I think was really the nail, final nail in the coffin of the missional movement, because that's where you found out that the emperor had no clothes on, that these missional thinkers weren't actually exegeting culture as accurately as they thought that they were. Third way is inherently compromised. And that really, you know, to move us forward, that really just does sum up what the problem with you know, not with mission, not with missional, but with the missional movement ended up being is it ended up being how, how can we compromise and how can we accommodate mm-hmm. sin in order to gain a hearing? And that's a, no, that's a non-starter. Yeah. When culture turned negative, 
The yeah. neutral ground for third wave, the yeah. neutral ground for faithful presence, it evaporated. And what ended up happening is a lot of those in the missional movement simply began to accommodate for the culture around them. And, of course, yeah. that always involves any any type of accommodation where missional thinking is concerned will yeah. always involve compromising biblical ideals. And yeah. that is never missional. No, what you ended up seeing is people are now hiding their beliefs. You know, and you talk about this all the time, even when especially like take an issue like ministering to the LGBT community, you'd have people that would pretty much hide that they thought that was a sin until well into the discipleship <laughs> process. That's so cruel. In, in every, cruel. in every step of the missional movement, even when you and I were, we weren't just kind of, it, it was very influential in us becoming church planters and pastors. But, you know, we actually dialogued with a lot of these missional thinkers back in the day. Yeah. And one question that always plagued me in the missional movement, even in neutral world, yeah. was at what point, and, and bar none, every single one of these are people that would say homosexuality Sexual lifestyles are incompatible yeah. with Christian living and discipleship. And no one ever answered the question that I always had, which is an easy question for me. At what point in someone's discipleship do you have to tell a person practicing a lifestyle of homosexuality that they have to, they have to stop? At yeah. what point of someone's discipleship do you have to tell two homosexuals who are married that they have to get a divorce to yeah. be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they don't want to answer that because especially in negative world, they know that that will lose an audience. Yeah. To the point where we have multiple examples. By the of, way, the answer to that is immediately. <laughs> immediately. Because <laughs> we have multiple examples in the last five years of homosexual couples coming to a church, getting involved in the church. They're never told their sin is going to be an issue. Serving at the church, mm -hmm. being a part of the church community, getting all the way up to the membership process, and then being told, what? Yeah, they, they, they made it all the way up to where they're in a membership interview for their church, yeah. and they had no idea. And, and and they react very negatively, and I would say, you should. That's cruel. Yeah, because you conned them. Yeah. It, it's fraudulent to yeah. act like, okay, it, it's okay. Well, the, they'll just figure it out. <laughs> right. And it's like, it, I, discipleship doesn't work, uh, you know, where, where that is concerned. And so in hiding their beliefs, you end up downplaying your beliefs. Yeah. The, you know, churches that don't publish doctrinal statements they don't publish their their yeah. morality they in their membership classes they say nothing about the difference yeah. between immorality and morality and so all of a sudden everything woke except LGBT issues are really important to the church because in a negative world, yeah. you have to uh, kind of synergize with the culture on all of these issues. And you have to accept that your mission is always going to try to find points of agreement in everything. Yeah. And especially where woke ideology is concerned, you yeah. have to lean into that if you're going to find common ground and it's unbiblical. Yeah, that this is the reason why. Um, so many missional churches were just ate up by social justice mm -hmm. and wokeism because they were looking for any area that they can affirm something in the culture because they're 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 running out of places to find this common ground and to gain a hearing. Yeah, and, and so they started eating it up. In, in missional thinking, there was a missionary named Leslie Newbing. Newbigin. And I think this is a helpful analogy because he gives in one of his books called Gospel and Pluralist Culture, which is kind of a handbook for how a lot of missional thinkers look at the mission of Jesus in the culture around them. 
He gives this analogy that fits really well, um, I think, in neutral world. It's this analogy of plural for that people will use for pluralism to show that all roads lead to God. And so you'll have a couple of blind men and they can't see an elephant, but they are told, you know, you need to go and figure out what this is. And one person, one of them goes and he grabs the um, the 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 feet and he says, this is a tree trunk. Another one grabs the ivory tusks and says, oh, this is a spear. Another one is is grabbing the tail and he says, oh, this is a rope. And another one pushes the side of the elephant and says, oh, this is a wall. And they say, see, all of them are feeling the same elephant, but they have a different perspective. But ultimately, at the end of the day, they all get to the elephant. It's what Newbigin points out, which is a really good point. He says, what you don't understand in this analogy is that one person does know what an elephant is and that they're all wrong. And that's the narrator. Of, of the story. And so the narrator needs to go in, help these blind men, explain what an mm. elephant is. And now you're grabbing the feet. Now you're grabbing the tail. Now you're grabbing the tusk. You're grabbing all these things. Well, in negative world, the reason that, that analogy falls apart, because in negative world, everyone would say the narrator is oppressing the blind men from his seeing privilege and probably some form of whiteness on his behalf. And so all of the blind men then will get together and form a critical theory about how the narrator <laughs> has been oppressing them. And they will call for the death of the narrator because who does he think he is to have the market cornered on what an elephant is anyway? Yeah. And so the reason the emperor has no clothes where a lot of missional thinking is concerned is because they have not kept up with where culture is right now. So many missional thinkers will point uh, to people who understand the positive world of Christianity and say, oh, you're so stuck in the past. Well, so many missional thinkers are stuck in 15 years ago. So many of them are trying to apply dead strategies to a new world. And what they need to do is kind of rethink their missiology and understand that the world that they are in has changed and the way that everybody describes an elephant has changed as well. Yeah, a lot of what you described is the the fruition of postmodern thinking, mm-hmm. and for what was predicted to happen for a long time, you in you saw in negative world that it has happened that that truth truly is now fully relative, and it's interesting because there there was a little time period there, I think even now five six years ago where where people were saying, you know, I don't know if postmodernism really going to be a thing because. Because all these kids seem to be very passionate about justice, and it doesn't truth doesn't seem to be too relative to them. Yeah. What they didn't understand, and I'll admit, I didn't fully understand this at the time. Was mm-hmm. no, no, uh, we're in a kind of a scarier place altogether. Truth is fully relative, and then they are passionate Pharisees about whatever they think Absolutely. is the truth. Yeah, the Pharisees um, of our day are the people that even that if you you can't even define postmodernism yet you'll yet many people will use a phrase like well that's my truth yeah well that's your truth that is postmodernism yeah that is the postmodern experiment and it has been applied but what people didn't understand is is that in elementary middle high school and colleges postmodern thinking thinkers were inundating your children with it and that's why your children don't believe truth exists objectively yeah so we uh, need a different, not different, we need a better missional strategy then to reach that kind of world. Yeah, I think we need a biblical yeah. uh, mission strategy that yep. we define by, and I'm going to use a crazy phrase here, that our missional strategy needs to be defined by reaching the lost. Mm, crazy. That's a crazy idea. It's, it's almost as if Jesus told us we needed to seek and to save the lost. 
He came to do it. He completed the mission. He gave us the good news. And that is what the world around us needs. So to get us started here, and this is going to be our, our, our last critique of missional movement, then to jump on on where we need to go from mm-hmm. there is is they tr- what they actually everything that we just described up till now they truncated the mission absolutely they 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 just made the mission all about the evangelizing a secular culture and that is not the the biblical missional strategy that we're going to get from scripture like you said we need to you know we actually have to care about discipleship we actually have to be concerned with how are we passing on the faith to the next generation how are we and yes mission is reaching the lost and when we do that through relationships we do that through service but if that's all it is that's that's greatly truncated we also have to disciple people yeah and we need to recover what is the mission of the church you know kevin de young wrote a great yeah. book about that where we actually get back to what god has created the church to do in in the first place, and that so many people have made the church about bringing about societal change, about social justice, about yeah. um, you know every type critical justice, about every type of justice that you have. But when you do that, you lose the core mission of what God created the church for, and that is about making disciples of Jesus Christ, teaching people that through their relationships they are to love others for the hope of showing them the love that they have in Jesus Christ, and that that involves building relationships so that you will have the relational equity to share the gospel with people, you know, through acts of service, through coming together as a church, learning the object of truth of scripture and actually being discipled through your knowledge so that you know what truth is so that you can distinguish it from error. And missional gurus like Hirsch and Foster, Michael Foster does this as well. Uh, they are quick to say that missional is not about strategy. It's not about church growth, but the question then has to be, what then is it about? If it's not about strategy, then what is the goal? If it's not about church growth, then are you saying it's disconnected from the body of Christ? What are the implications of those ideas? If it's something new, if it's a brand new thing, well, then you got to ask, is it biblical? And if it's not biblical, then what does that tell us foundationally? about that movement. If it is not about what God defines in Scripture, then as a movement, it was always doomed to failure. If it's not about building the body of Christ, it's always doomed to failure. If it is not about explicitly making disciples of Jesus Christ, then the missional movement was always doomed to failure because that is the mission that God is on. Therefore, that is the mission that God is going to call his people to. Yeah. Um the biggest aspect of all that that you just said that I think it's important to highlight, even if a little bit, is a part of building the church is building the children of the church. And that is what we I think that was one of the light bulbs that really showed yeah. us there's some flaws here is and especially as you transition to a negative world, if all your mission activities is about gaining a hearing with a secularist who don't agree with Christian morality and you you water down your your beliefs, you, you compromise everywhere that you can, and you don't have any mindset to how is this affecting the, in our context, hundreds of kids that we have watching us do this mission. Um, you're not going to end up with a good long-term strategy for mission because our number one mission field is our kids. And we have to make sure that they're getting disciples. Missional thinkers. And you don't even realize it until you have a family that missional thinkers never write about family. Yeah. They never write about family relationships. They never write about family discipleship. They never write about child rearing. 
because that is a blind spot that they haven't formed. And that kind of lets you know that their concept of mission is different than the mission of God, because God's mission is always about discipling the next generation of Christians, yeah. of building a family for the sake of Christianity. And and it's a false dichotomy to act like family is different than mission. Family yeah. is the mission. The greatest analogies of right. what the church is are analogies of the family. And yeah. so this false dichotomy just couldn't endure. Yeah. I think giving them the 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 best you know idea that that i think they would say is uh those missional thinkers thought as long as their family sees them engaging the culture you know that's the most important thing for discipleship they just had this idea that you know if if my family just sees me out and serving the culture if they see me kind of being winsome and being just engaging uh then my kids are going to get it but that's it's it just flawed. Work. Kids because need to be proactively discipled. Then you just kind of do default what the yeah. rest of the world does, where education is yeah. concerned, where career is concerned, where planning for your children's future is yeah. concerned, and you don't raise your children distinctively Christian. And that yeah. term distinctive is yes. important, yeah. that there is no missional movement that does not involve distinctively Christian child rearing, yeah. that you're raising your children to be Christians above absolutely anything else. And the missional movement left us with a poor vision for the next generation. And it truncates discipleship within the church because it has no vision of discipling your kids. Yeah. What one generation holds loosely or holds as unimportant, the next generation rejects. And so... You know, that really just kind of sums that up, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have to teach your kids to follow Jesus before you're going to teach anybody else to. And then ultimately, you know, another flaw was the fact that they wanted us to change the culture before they wanted us to build the church. Yeah. And what they don't understand is you have to build the church in order to change the culture. Yep. Uh, One key missional strategy that was not a part of that movement that needs to be is building robust Christian communities. Mm -hmm. Because in a negative world, um, the world is going to come crashing down on the community. And if you have not first built a robust Christian community that is strong, that is secure in who they are as Christians, that is secure in their own Christian culture, uh, all your mission activities are going to be swept away as the world sweeps your kids and, yeah. and sweeps everyone else away. So we've got to build a, ro- a robust Christian community. And too many people have a short-term strategy where societal yeah. change is concerned. Societal change is good, but it's rooted in the gospel. But it's not rooted in defining justice according According to societal ideals, apart from biblical philosophy and theology, the church, because here's how it must work. The church engages the culture with the gospel by making disciples within the church, sending them out into the culture. And then those new believers live biblically and then send out their families to work as Christians in culturally engaging gospel proclamation to everyone that they're in relationship with. That changes the world. But we fail when we synergize, accept pagan definitions of culture and justice, and then seek to form a new society apart from the eschatological schemes of the gospel where triumph uh, of the proclaimed word is concerned. That's how we fail. And that's the type of social justice that is taking root in the SBC right now and the PCA. Across every denomination, they're trying to synergize with the culture around them. 
if your uh, attempts to see justice in the culture is an attempt to line up with the values of the culture mm-hmm. to gain a hearing, you're not going to end up with true justice. Uh, you first have to build the culture of the church. And then as in the mission of the church is to make disciples, that's the mission of the church. It is not bigger than that. Does that mean we don't care about societal change? No, because we do believe that individual Christians then as they go out and live Christian lives will change society. But the key is they're not just kind of grabbing on to society's vision of justice. No. They're changing society in a Christian vision of justice, which society is not necessarily going to appreciate. And so it's, it's a totally different understanding than what the missional movement ended yeah. up with uh, as they went into negative Mission world. is still about having a good strategy, even in negative world. It's still about reaching the lost, yeah. but it's about having a biblical strategy. That still matters. Yeah. If you compromise your faith, if you're unclear about the truth, if you're not discipling the next generation, then you have a very, very bad missional strategy. And so we have to be realists that negative world makes it more difficult to reach those uh, consumed with false ideology, but that's always been true. Yeah. That's always been the case. But there are more people who fundamentally have false worldviews now, and the only way to reach them is to speak the truth. The way to correct error is with truth. Yeah. And we have to, it is critically important that with all these false ideologies out there that we live out and this is where, this, you know, I could say what faithful presence really means mm-hmm. is being faithfully present in our Christian communities where we are unashamed of the truth, where we are living out God's creation design, where we are having families with joy that go into the world as distinctly Christian. If your idea of mission always takes you away from Christian community, then you're not on the mission of God. You're simply seeking to synergize with the culture around you. You've got to have a philosophy, a theology, a strategy of mission that engages the world with what they need, the life-changing truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us today. As always, if you have any questions for us, please send it to the email listed below, and we will join you next time.